Hey, what's up everybody? My name's MJ and you're listening to the one and only MTG in Quarantine podcast. As usual, I'd like to give a quick shout out before we begin today to my local game store, Guardian Games. You can find Guardian Games on the web at ggportland.com. I also have a very interesting Patreon available if you would like to support the show monetarily. If you would like to help me continue to create great content, you can find me at patreon.com slash quarantine. And I'm also going to shout out to my great, awesome patron, Mr. Big Benz. Thank you so much for supporting the channel. Alright, so the topic of today's episode is going to be something that's come of interest to me as of late, and I definitely want to talk more about that. But before we get to the meat of today's episode, I'd like to introduce my guest for today, Scoots. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So uh, you said that you're part of a content creation group. Where can people find some of that? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Scoots. I'm a member of the Mind Sculptors. Uh, you can find us on YouTube at the Mind Sculptors or on Twitter at Sculpty Boys. Ah, uh, yes. Very good creation. A lot of CEDH stuff. Yes. And speaking of CEDH, that's actually why I, or I invited you onto the show here today. So for anyone who has been listening to my podcast for a while and isn't aware, CEDH is the competitive side of the EDH format. It's not its own format. It is definitely the same concept, 100-card singleton with a commander based around color identity. But I wanted to bring you on today, Scoots, to kind of dispel a, you know, some of the myths, I guess, about how someone would get started in CEDH. I mean, personally, for me, it's something that I've been more interested in doing as of late the last couple of months, you know, having been active on the Twitter community, seeing a lot of CEDH play, but not really understanding how to get started, since I'm, you know, a very casual player. I like Battlecruiser Magic most of the time. But, sure. you know, the opportunity to try the, I, I guess, the deep end of things, you know, with, with uber-powerful cards and uh, strategies and whatnot, how would you, as someone who's really been playing this for a while, try to introduce this format in, like, 10 to 15 minutes to someone like me who's just interested in getting started but doesn't know anything about the format. Sure. So the way I like to look at CEDH is it is just EDH. CEDH players are EDH players. Except our Rule Zero conversation is baked in at the beginning of the game. We believe that everyone should attempt to play to win, play the most efficient strategies that they can, and part of the fun that the group agrees to have is that everyone will try to win and everyone will try to stop each other from trying to win. So it's no different than sitting down and having your rules, your, your rules, your conversation with your normal group, except we just kind of skip it. We assume that we've, we've had it. Um, a CEDH can be kind of daunting, uh, to, to get started with because there are so many cards that perhaps you're not used to seeing, and that whole kind of uh, ethos of going for the win at all times and playing to win can seem kind of foreign if you've mostly been playing Battlecruiser EDH. Um, as someone who plays Battlecruiser EDH as well, um, it is uh, it is definitely difficult to kind of shift between the two of them. Uh, so the way that I would intro someone who played uh, Battlecruiser EDH to CEDH is to kind of... Uh, the first thing that I would do is I would, I would sit them down and say, this is a CEDH game. All of these people have agreed that they're going to have fun. 
by trying to win. So you don't, first of all, you don't need to feel like you're sullying anyone's game experience by trying to win or by trying to prevent someone else from winning. I, normally, I find that to be the biggest hurdle. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but... I mean, for me, being someone who's very new to this, it's it's definitely a different mindset. I mean, you know, just being in battle crews or games most of the time, I would say with my local playgroup, we like running a lot of really big, splashy, doofy spells. And, you know, that that's, that's great for what we're trying to do there. But in CDH, obviously, that doesn't work because it doesn't really work with the mindset. You're trying to get your game plan online, in theory, as quickly as possible. And then while also trying to slow your opponents down so that they can't do the same thing. It's a very, I guess, different balance, um, I, I suppose, versus more casual games. It definitely is kind of a different balance as far as how things work. But... One of the things I think you'll find about most CEDH players is we kind of still love the big splashy effects. We just pick ones that tend to end the game instead of uh, instead of advancing your board or advancing you know, gaining your, your value state. or something. Yeah, right. So well, in CEDH as well as EDH, I'll, there's there's lots of commonality. We we both use. Uh, engines for card advantage and for creature advantage and uh, you'll see everything from Voltron-ish strategies to token generation to massive card draw just like you would see at a at an EDH table at a CEDH table you'll see you'll see all those things so we have that commonality I would say that the way that they're super different is that while a crazy battle cruiser engine might be online around turn seven or eight, a crazy CEDH card advantage engine will be online by turn three. Mm -hmm. That's that's basically the big delineator. So we take all the crazy parts, all the fun stuff of an EDH game, and we cram it into four or five turns. Yeah, and again, you're also choosing the most powerful cards that are available in the format. So a typical CEDH deck, from at least from what I've understood, from watching videos, from trying to consume more content to understand things better, is that you're going to be playing with those ABUR dual lands. You're going to be playing with the most powerful, illegal anyway, mana rocks that are available. Yeah. Whereas, you, again, you're not necessarily going to be seeing those in most casual circles. I mean, for instance, my playgroup, we have never dropped a mana crypt. We've never dropped a mana vault. But I really haven't seen a whole lot of regular CEDH games where you haven't seen at least one of those hit the table at some point, or if someone has the opportunity to be able to drop one of those at some point. And it's just... Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so you have a, I guess, a more powerful card pool, and then you're trying to utilize those to be able to get your strategies online much faster. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's that's like a really, really direct way of looking at it. We have we don't we don't necessarily take umbrage with using that more powerful part of the EDH card pool. It's uh, in fact something that we kind of love, and one of one of the best things, one of the best feelings in CEDH is a turn one smothering tithe. Okay, that's oh, yeah. a really good feeling, <laughs> or like a a turn one crom online cards like that. Things like that are like kind of. Um, part of the whole CEDH metagame. It's a thing that you're not going to see in a more casual game, but in a CEDH game is, is fairly normal. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that, though, the big 
the big delineation between CEDH decks and casual decks because uh, I will say that it, at like my local shop, um, one of my introductions to the whole idea behind CEDH was me playing a barely tuned cat precon back in 2017. And this guy Entomb reanimates an Elish Norn on turn two in mm -hmm. a in a casual game. And that was one of the first things that was one of the first um huge, splashy, crazy things that I ever saw. And the the thing with CEDH decks is they're trying to get those things online faster and you notice I you notice I mentioned Entomb, right? Mm -hmm. Uh so CEDH decks one other thing that is uh, the big kind of uh, divide between a CEDH deck and a and a less tuned deck is tutor density. Okay. So I think I think that honestly more than like mana rocks and lands because I've definitely played against like five color slivers running all the ABUR duels and mana crypt and mana vault and that's a higher powered casual deck. It's not a battle cruiser deck, but it is a higher powered casual deck. Um. I've seen I've seen them running those, but what they don't run is the huge amount of tutors. In CEDH, you're gonna run Vampiric Tutor and Demonic Tutor and Wishclaw Talisman and Enlightened Tutor and Worldly Tutor and Mystical Tutor and and basically every card with the word Tutor in front of it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, whereas in a more casual pod, in my experience, you'll see those things more frowned upon. Um, so I think in a casual deck. In a more casual deck, you can run things like, like Elish Norn or Mana Crypt or Mana Vault, but it has to do with like when you get it online, mm -hmm. and how and how you get those things into your hand. I think is the big difference. Yeah, definitely. Because again, I I kind of lampoon my own use of Demonic Tutor, the the copy I do have, where it's kind of stuck in my super budget deck, kind of as a joke, because I. <laughs> I, I love being able to utilize a $50 card to be able to search up a 10 cent equipment. It's, right. it's always very funny. But again, yeah, my, my other decks, I'm typically not searching for specific pieces because I love the variants of casual games. But again, CDH, you're looking for that certainty. You're trying, you're, you're taking the lines from competitive 60 card formats and Canadian Highlander, obviously, and then you're trying to reduce variants to make sure that you were able to get your pieces on the field as quickly and as efficiently as possible. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really good way to look at it. Like like you said, uh, instead of tutoring for a ten cent equipment or or using it to tutor for something because you enjoy the variance of that in a CEDH deck, that demonic tutor is either going for a piece of interaction or a win con almost every time. Yeah, usually the second half of an A B combo. Sure, or I mean. Sometimes even Demonic Tutor is not necessarily even going to be what you're looking for. At that point, you're going to be using something like Vampiric Tutor, which you can play at instant speed, end, end phase, put it on top of your library, draw a card, then you have it in your hand. You know, just even differences like that, sorcery speed versus instant speed, you, you see a lot of those differences. That's definitely something I've noticed watching a lot of, uh, of CEDH videos. It's just the the number of instants versus the number of sorceries i suppose is definitely one of those where you see fewer sorceries that have middling impact i suppose and you're definitely trying to make sure you can interact on the stack at all times yeah i i would even say that like in a in a cedh deck um you know one of the things that is common between edh decks and cedh decks is that we both run 
interaction. In an EDH deck, though, your interaction might be more permanent-based, or mm -hmm. you might play something like a Hull Breach. That was always an all-star, because I played a lot of Gruul when I was playing Battlecruiser oh, EDH. Yeah. I would run Hull Breach, and that, I loved that card. Whereas in CEDH, you'll see a lot of interaction pieces that would actually probably be poorly suited for a casual EDH game. You see us run a lot of 1CMC, 2CMC instant speed interaction. Uh, highlights of the format are like Assassin's Trophy, Abrupt Decay, Swords to Plowshares, Wear and Tear, that kind of thing. The, this kind of single target removal, because in a CEDH game, generally, like a, like a mass removal, like a Merciless Eviction or a Damnation, is not necessarily relevant it's not you don't need that much you don't need that much mass removal because generally you're hampered by one piece mm -hmm. so we're running the best cards at getting rid of one piece at a time where in uh, a battle cruiser deck you might run board wipes sure I mean, but but we also I, again every one of those cards you mentioned also is still very good in a casual deck too so i guess it's kind of the way you stack your deck with those kinds of very cheap removal pieces versus, you know, playing something like in, in my in my playgroup, running Mortify is just fine because that is a fairly sure. efficient piece of removal. We'll play Putrefy. Yeah. We'll play the three and four pieces of removal and we'll play a lot of board wipes. My my bat my game my playgroups games, excuse me, end up being very grindy because we do play a lot of board wipes and a lot of removal pieces. But again, we're not necessarily playing the most efficient removal right. pieces so sure. yeah it, it's it, it's just one of the things is that we have a lot of the same tools i suppose but it's just really how we utilize them differently is yeah it, it is and and just the fact that your cedh deck is going to have more of them and it's not going to have as many of the larger cmc spells versus my typical deck that i would build well you know all of a sudden one extra mana for a mortify if i don't have to spend 15 dollars on something sure. more efficient well it does what I want it to do, and it's is perfectly fine there. But in CDH, you just don't have that time to be able to wait to be able to utilize that card when something like Swords of Plowshares, Path to Exile, is just right there, one mana, gets the job and, done. Yep. Yeah, and gets the job done honestly better than uh, the Mortify would. And uh, that that kind of leads into like uh, another lovely kind of intro topic for CDH that you mentioned. You said in in your in your playgroup. Uh, that Mortify is a card that you would run because it saves you some money. On the CEDH side of things, the decks are so expensive that almost no one owns their entire deck, mm -hmm. right? Like it's a it's a it's a low percentage of people that that actually have purchased the entirety of their deck. We we encourage proxy usage in CEDH. Yeah, yeah. How much would so, you say a typical CEDH deck would run, just for those who aren't familiar with uh, the price on usually on these decks? You know, it's been a while since I've priced out a CEDH deck, but when I was starting out, it was about three to five grand, mm -hmm. and now I'm seeing prices between eight and twelve thousand dollars with spikes wow. in cards yeah. especially if you're running something like time twister or oh, reserve yeah. list cards like gilded drake when i started out playing gilded drake was a 80 dollars card mm -hmm. and it's it is about 300 now yeah and and, and all of so. the even like the revised dual lands you know those things have just shot up like a bottle rocket effectively yeah, I, got my last year. <laughs> I got my tropical island for 140 dollars back in the day nice and 
like the and my mox diamond was about that much and these cards have just shot straight up to the moon yeah so it's it just one of those reasons why i proxied my first cedh deck i haven't really played around with it much but i i realized that it would cost like five thousand dollars to, to proxy yeah. so i figured you know be best to because <clears throat> Because I'm running uh, Savannah, I'm also running Guy's Cradle in that deck, so those are expensive cards. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's if I can proxy those up and play, as long as the community's okay with that, then I'm okay with it. My wallet is happy. I remember I sold about between 25 and 40 rares to get enough money for my Guy's Cradle in 2018 when it was $340, and mm -hmm. now, like... I, I look at prices and I just it's disgusting how high how high things have run so yeah we uh, and, yeah. and and my local LGS again guarded games you can find them at ggportland.com see a great segue there yeah but um <clears throat> for a while there they had a binder for for the usual open play back in the before times before COVID and they had a gold border guy's cradle in there and in theory you had to trade uh, like fifty chips in that you would get for participating in there to be okay. able to trade in for a guy's cradle because you know still it's a powerful card but the store didn't really want it all that much yeah. because you yep. know because it's gold bordered it's not legal in any format technically but right. again we in we in edh as edh players we don't really care so much about that yeah um but yeah it's it's one of those things where you know i, I wish if i had known how expensive those things were going to be wish i could have just bought that thing outright because <laughs> the gold bordered guy's cradle now is still like four hundred dollars or something it's it's insane yeah i, I kind of look back at it the same way like i started playing edh in 2016 and i used pretty much printed proxies exclusively i started my edh playing actually at the play edh server mm. uh years ago and i pretty much used printed proxies right like i was cutting stuff out on my printer um I didn't start buying in until around 2018, and like I, I think of if I had started buying in 2016, I could have made like a down payment on a house. Sure, sure. Yeah, the, <laughs> the, these decks are def the price of these decks are definitely an obstacle for a lot of newer players. It's it's why I obviously I proxy the deck, even though there's mm -hmm. a lot of pieces that I technically have in paper form in there, but again, I don't have the most expensive pieces in there. I don't have the yeah. The mana crypt, the mana vaults on that, but again, I was able to proxy the OG art on those too. So it, yeah. you know, ha having the original '96 art of mana crypt is just so cool. Even though it's, yeah, it is it's a proxy, cool. but hey, you know, it's, yeah. it's still really cool to have that and an OG Birds of Paradise things like that. So yeah, so uh, yeah, I mean, so the the financial aspect of CEDH is a uh, is uh, like I think we've been discussing like another big hurdle for people to kind of get over and the idea of uh i run i'm the head admin at a pretty popular cedh webcam server uh the cedh nexus and one of our things that we notice in players newer to the format one of the biggest hurdle is uh willingness to proxy uh but um that's another discussion that you kind of have to have with someone that you're introducing to the format just telling them to basically if you're if you're not proxying and you're not an already enfranchised player like you're going to be a turn or two slower than the rest of the table uh so yeah that's another kind of talk that you have to have with someone when you're introducing them to cedh 
Yeah, for sure. So uh, again, another thing that's kind of been in my mind about this, and again, I've followed quite a few CEDH people and started to learn this from scratch, but where would you really direct people who are interested in this format into really learning what decks are considered CEDH? Obviously, there's kind of a, a mythos in CEDH that not every deck can be CEDH. You can have powerful decks, but not necessarily ones that really fit the ethos. So if I was to come and say, Scoots, I want to get into this format, but how do I find out what decks are, are CEDH? Where would I even start on, on looking on that? So first, uh, the, there's, there's kind of a fairly obvious answer to this, and then there's kind of my answer to this. And my answer to this is that most decks, when tuned to their maximum efficiency, if their win con is concise can be a CEDH deck. One of my more notable brewing experiments is Malcolm and Dargo Pirate Ball, right? So okay. doesn't doesn't sound like a CEDH deck, but there are enough concise combos you, utilizing those two commanders. And being in blue-red generally means, like, you have a pretty good chance, it's a pretty good base for a CEDH deck. So I think, personally, that most decks tuned to their maximum, running efficient combos, can be a CEDH deck. However, there are people who think otherwise, and uh, people are certainly free to form their own opinions on the issue. And mm -hmm. one set of people who have formed their opinions on the issue, and a great resource for someone looking to start out in CEDH, is the CEDH, is the CEDH Decklist Database. It is a independently run group of people who... Uh, select decks that they feel have true CEDH potential, uh, and then they publish the database, and that's available at cedh-decklist-database.com. And it's a collection of many different decks with many different commanders and uh, a whole bunch of different ideas going on, and it is, I would say, a very logical starting point for someone looking to get into the format. And you know, a lot of people don't like to net deck, and I get that, and that's that's acceptable. That's totally fine. But one of the things that you can do on the decklist database, instead of completely net decking, is kind of find the form. Find uh, You can get an idea of what goes into a CEDH deck and what kinds of strategies you should be playing towards and what ends up being the most optimized. And then you can use those reference points to kind of shape the deck to the way that you would like to keep playing. Mm -hmm. I definitely found my CEDH deck off this list. I was directed towards it, and uh, again, I usually try to build my own EDH decks, but I wasn't afraid to net deck on here because this is my first foray into actually running any decks with infinite combos in there. We just don't do that in my local playgroup. So sure. for me, is that I've never really use my brain to try to understand combos. So I figured, okay, you know, what can I figure out fairly easily and then try to go from there, you know, using, using uh, different strategies or at least looking at the different strategies, you know, there's some there where it's just, I looked at the primer that are available and it didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I would move on to something that fit a little bit more in my brain. And yeah. it, it's definitely one of those things where I would definitely like to spend more time just going through, digging through, learning more about the different kinds of decks as I start wading more into the format. 
Yeah. And I think that's honestly like a, that's, I mean, that's a really good thing that you did. That's a really good way to start that you did. You, you dig in, you read the primers, you see if you understand it, you see if it's something that sounds like you'd want to play. And if not, there's, there's like, I think like 50 other choices to go through. Yeah. Yeah, so, definitely. uh, yeah, I mean, definitely the, the database is a, is a really good starting point. And then the thing that I recommend after that is just print off a deck and then go play the, the, the easiest introduction to a CEDH game is a pod with friendly people. Honestly, like if I think one of the, one of the points of the community that I really like that I like to point out is that the CEDH community on the whole generally is incredibly friendly and incredibly willing to be like educational when you sit down into a pod with them. If we know it's it's one of your early games of CEDH, we'll be like, okay, oh, sweet. I like that deck. That's a really cool deck. Did you know you can do this, this, and this? Uh, I see your board state now. Maybe if you did this line, it would help you get there. And at the same time, like, they're, they're still going to interact with you. But another thing is um, when you get done with your game, after the game, talk to the pod and ask them what you did correct what you did wrong what you could have done better and um have that after action type of talk you know we don't we skip the rule zero talk generally at the beginning but we always have kind of like the rundown at the end if 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 people want that so i think one of the best things you can do is just play a pod and then talk to your pod after and kind of get that information through yeah that's really interesting and it's i've definitely heard that that's one of the one, another one of the barriers for new people getting into the format is just not being sure of trying something new. I mean, I, I know that's one of the reasons why I've been kind of hesitantly trying to slowly get into CEDH is, again, I have never tried this before. And you're never quite yeah. sure if people are friendly or not, because, again, we've all had bad experiences or LGSs. And unfortunately, Absolutely. that is sometimes definitely colored our experiences so again going and asking people for help is definitely something i've had um trouble with trying to get into this so it's good to to know that there's a lot of great people out there um who are willing to help you out and learn the format or at least learn this yeah. side of this side of the format i yeah i mean i think i think you know i've had some i've had some bad experiences in pods as well i think i think we all have sure. but um there is, uh, I there are so many people as at least you know my my niche is kind of the online the webcam community of CEDH and at least in that community I could you know I could name a dozen people that are worth like getting games with that will take the time to help you and make your first experience a great one and you know there are, there's the CEDH game server there's the CEDH Nexus there's Play EDH Max Power a lot of people like that as well and there are great players on all of those servers and uh you know i'm i'm scoots on the cedh nexus if you decide you want to pop in shoot me a message let me know i'll tell you exactly who to play with we have people uh kind of kind of on the staff to kind of to to mentor people and to teach them the game and that kind of thing uh, and if you see someone in the CEDH community that you think you'll get along with, shoot them, shoot them a message. If, if, if it's me, shoot me a message. If it's someone else, shoot, shoot them a message and say, Hey, I want to learn CEDH. You seem cool. Will you help me? And generally I've, I've found that a lot of people are very receptive to that. 
Well, that's definitely good to know. You'll have to send me a message to the Nexus because I'd be interested in popping in there and maybe getting in a few games when I get time. Yeah, I'll send you an invite. Cool, cool. And uh, again, the last thing I wanted to touch on a little bit was that I was inspired by, again, another great creator in CEDH community, the guys who are playing with power. And I've been watching a lot of their videos for a while now, and they keep doing low, or not really low, but budget builds on CEDH. And Absolutely. it's definitely something that I've been building for my own play group is that I think I finally got them interested in at least trying CEDH. But again, since we're very new to this whole thing, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a hurdle trying to figure out, well, what exactly do we want to play as we're just trying to learn, get started, try to incorporate this on in our regular EDH games. And so I, I've definitely found myself uh, very inspired by their uh, budget builds, and I built one of my own based on one of their examples, for instance. I mean, I, I yeah. kept some of the shell. Obviously, I didn't have all the cards in my collection, but I kind of tried to fit with the theme of mm -hmm. the deck while also including a lot of the same things they did. And while I know that a lot of the budget builds, again, going back to the CEDH deck database, is that you're not always going to be able to be the most competitive at a lower budget point, but again, there are versions of these decks on the database that do have budget versions for those who don't really want to proxy necessarily, or may have some of the cards on hand, but really want to get into that deck without spending several thousand dollars. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, <laughs> as far as as far as, far as uh, budgeted decks go, there there are there are even great resources for budget CEDH. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, at budgetbrews.club, there's the CEDH Budget Brews server. Uh, they have a link to their Discord server, and in that Discord server, you'll find lots of guides for budgeted CEDH. They even maintain their own. Uh, budgeted CEDH decklist database of lists that are generally $500 and under that have a lot of cards that people would normally have in their collection and aren't running necessarily things like Mana Crypt and Mana Vault, but are still fairly fast CEDH decks. They tend to be trend towards what I would call more high-power casual, but they're mostly CEDH decks, uh, and they're tuned to be, you know, to, to run along the same lines as a CEDH deck with high tutor density and speed and the best win cons and that and that kind of thing. Um, it's really great. It's really great, really great resource. Uh, and um, I, I like to get on there. They play, uh, they have, they host games on the server. They'll do cockatrice games or they'll do webcam games and that kind of thing as well. Uh, so it's a really great resource if you're interested in looking into budgeted CEDH and Timmy T1000, the guy that runs it, is a uh, budgeting wizard. Um, is the is the most succinct way to put it. He is so great at coming up with budget mana bases and uh, budget like he has lists of budget mana bases, budget hate bears, budget acceleration, like hundred card lists of uh, decklists on Moxfield with all these different things in them uh, and. He he makes it really easy to get started on budgeted CEDH. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've if you've heard about that at all, but yeah, I I popped in there once or twice. Obviously, I haven't really dug into it too much, but I've definitely taken a look at it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good resource if you're looking to start out in CEDH and you have like a fairly deep card collection already. 
just maybe not some of the reserve list stuff and the <laughs> fast mana and that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. All right. Yeah. So again, we're I think that kind of wraps up this portion of the of the podcast segment. Again, if you're new if you're new to CEDH but you're interested in learning more, definitely check out the deck database or CEDH dash decklist dash database dot com to check out the competitive edh decklist database and all the awesome stuff out there you can also check out the budget brewers corner and various discord servers available out there to help you learn more about this interesting side of the format but something another reason why i wanted to bring you on scoots was actually talk about something completely unrelated to magic actually um So, yeah, it sounds to me like both of us really enjoy music and we're both bass players. And I kind of yeah. wanted to just uh, move on to that a little bit. Uh, you know, so, so again, if, if, if you're listening to the show and you're not really into the music, um, please don't skip this. It, it's still going to be a good discussion. So It's going to be worth <laughs> it. Come on. <laughs> yeah, so, um, again, bass is definitely something that I have been interested in for over a decade. It I picked it up after band... Uh, in high school, where I realized I wasn't, you know, the best musician, and I didn't really feel like getting into music at the college, or at at the collegiate level. We didn't have a marching band at my college, and so there weren't a whole lot of opportunities, you know, being a non-music major to get into that. So I figured, okay, I like rock. Um, I kind of want to try guitar out, but I was confused by chords, let's say. Uh, Let's be honest about that. Um, chords are very confusing when you don't understand exactly what you're doing so I I picked up the bass and it took me a while to kind of get to it but after a while you just get comfortable and you start really learning that it's just like CEDH to EDH I suppose bass is kind of like the CEDH to our EDH of guitar I suppose is that like it's it's a different way of thinking but it's so necessary I I guess to to any kind of group is that you you can never not have a low end in, in any kind of song you absolutely have to have that so uh yeah it's just it but it's a different kind of mindset than being a guitar player because you're always trying to hold down the low end of of any kind of song and you know sometimes you kind of get forgotten it's it, it's why we bass players have to stick together you know yeah i mean it's it's so i think it's it's kind of self-serving but at the same time i don't feel bad about saying it uh it's 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 that uh bass players are kind of like the foundation of uh i think as far as like rock music and blues music and that kind of thing goes i think without like a strong rhythm section without that backbeat without that drive of the bass that music kind of falls apart it's why like if you see bands that are just a drummer and a guitarist the guitarist always has the bottom strings through an octave pedal or whatever because sounds low end the music just kind of falls apart it's just not as good right yeah it's probably a little self-serving to say that but (laughs) but bass players are the most important part and i think everybody knows that right oh definitely definitely and i mean again i have i do have experience i have been a drummer in a crappy college rock band i have played guitar i've taught myself guitar uh Mm -hmm. radio six string guitar and it's fun doing that, but again, the bass is where I feel the most comfortable. I spent the most time Absolutely. doing that. And again, being a bass player is not necessarily the most um, glamorous, I guess. I sure. I do remember seeing a, a meme that a former bandmate sent to me uh, one point a few years back, and basically, it, it shows the different levels of 
you know, you know, rock acts, you know, getting groupies is the whole joke, right? So <laughs> I, whether whether you agree with that prognostication regarding uh, musicians or not, obviously there's issues with that. But the joke is you get, a, let's just say you get a lot of fans then. Well, you get sure. a lot of fans being a lead singer. You mm-hmm. get some fans being the lead guitar player. You get a fan or two being a drummer. But being a bass player, yeah, no, no one wants to be a fan of you. And yeah, it's, it's I, like, that is the sad truth, I guess, about being a bass player, is that you're not going to be in the music videos half the time. But without <laughs> you, there kind of isn't a band. And without yeah. a drummer, there isn't a band. But definitely without a bass player, there isn't a band, because otherwise you're missing something. And, you know, in, yeah. <laughs> in college, I was in a band, and they said the bass player's responsibility is to count to four and bring the beer and so i just stopped playing for a little bit yeah and they were like oh doesn't sound that good anymore so yeah i i was once told by an old bandmate that uh bass players only play four notes and it's just yeah are you kidding me are you are you literally saying that to my face because I mean, you have no idea what i'm capable of doing on this bass early in my early in my lessons one joke that uh teacher used with me was uh kid goes to his music teacher and decides he wants bass lessons so they have week one uh they learn all the notes on the e string and then week two they learn all the notes on the a string and then in the third week the teacher calls the student because he doesn't show up and the student never answers so on the fourth week uh this kid doesn't show up again teacher calls him and his kid says oh sorry teach couldn't show up for my lesson i had a gig Oh, like, <laughs> oh, that 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 is true oh, and sad at the same time. Well, the the thing is, like, yes, it's kind of derisive towards like, kind of derogatory towards bass players, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they need to know the E and the A. Sure. But like, also at the same time, if you look at like local band classifieds or whatever, no one's looking for a lead guitarist. Sure. There's always like, there's always like. Marty with his Les Paul who can play lead guitar, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knows the blue scale and the doodle doos, but everyone's always looking for a bassist. Yeah, that that, that was something that uh, uh, a guy who was in a, a guitarist in a local band told me is that you're pretty good at bass. There will always be a band out there wanting someone with your skills because even if you go beyond even just the standard four strings and you start learning how to string things together, you can you can be a very good bass player you know, in what you're needed to do without really needing a whole ton of experience. It's something where kind of when, when I first was playing, I wasn't very good, obviously. I felt really bad when I was playing with a friend of mine who was very good at guitar. And over mm-hmm. time, you just kind of learn, you get better. I was in a couple of cover bands, and I learned so much just by playing covers. You know, just understanding how do I fit in how, the group dynamic, understanding how you play with other musicians, but also just kind of learning how to play a line, work with something that doesn't necessarily fit. Obviously, when the guitar and the bass aren't playing the same thing, how do you try to fill in with that? And then learning kind of some fills and a little bit of improvisation. I mean, uh, again, before times, we were playing a, an old Cream tune, uh, Strange Brew, I think it was. And, okay. I mean, I, instead of learning the actual uh, Jack Bruce bass line, um, I ended up kind of just creating a a funkier blues line that I, you know, I just kind of came up, came up with it out of my ass really at the first mm-hmm. practice. And it's just like, it's repetitive. 
the bass line in the actual song is not necessarily repetitive. There's a lot of kind of dinking around, going, doing some some weird parts of the major scale and whatnot. It's like, okay, you know, I could try to learn this verbatim, or I could try to play the solid line that really fits the feeling of the song. And it just yeah. added so much more to the song when you go back and listen to it. When when because we had it recorded, right? So we were able to go back i was able to go back and listen to that just you know that low end is so much chunkier than it would have been if i was just kind of going down a scale but again just adding that little bit in even if it's repetitive you're adding some depth to the song that isn't there before and i think that's what people kind of forget is playing bass doesn't necessarily have to mean playing two or three notes in a row it's just kind of learning getting a little bit better adding in when you can and but also just really making the song yeah, absolutely. I definitely agree. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase Victor Wooten here just a little oh, bit. Oh, yes. Uh, Rick, Vic Wooten, incredible bass player, uh, interesting guy. And uh, I went to a clinic with him when I was younger. And one of the things that he said was, uh, it doesn't matter what instrument you're playing, your job is to serve the song. Serve the song was a thing that is a thing that he pushes in like his clinics. And I saw a video just the other day of him. He has he's doing a clinic, and I think it's like Michael League from Snarky Puppy is sitting next to him, and Vic just starts playing the intro to uh, My Girl, you know the da 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 da, just over and over again, and the crowd starts vibing, and then he stops playing and he points out to all of them that they were just vibing and they were getting lost in the song, and he said you get lost in that baseline because that baseline serves the song. And then he did like, uh, he did another, like a fancier kind of slap type baseline in the same rhythm. And, uh, he said, you're listening to that baseline. You're not getting lost in the song. So that, so that baseline doesn't serve the song as a whole. Vic Wooten is essentially says that like the bass player's job is to, is to serve the song and to glue the band together. And if that means, playing a, a more simplified line or or playing less notes then that's what you have to do and i think that's the the big divide between like a long time skilled bass player and a kind of average bass player or a new bass player it's a new bass player is probably gonna they're gonna hear um uh around uh, what is it um red hot chili peppers cover song yep yep uh you know what I'm talking about. The, bam, 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 the yep. first slap song that you hear, right? Higher yeah, ground. Higher ground. Yeah. They're going to hear higher ground and they're going to go to their, they're going to go to their rehearsal with their friends and start trying to slap every bass line. I, right. I, but... I know I did. I, I did try to learn <laughs> that, but it's just like, Oh crap, this is really fast. <laughs> but like, as you, as you play longer, you'll find that the craziest guys, like I'll mention Mike Lee again, listen to snarky puppy michael league plays these kind of subdued like a little bit active but mostly subdued kind of bass lines and he lets soloists like uh keyboards and guitars and drums he lets all that stuff kind of shine to the front but if you took out michael league from snarky puppy snarky puppy would sound hollow right so i i think i think that i think that that's the thing that bass players that people people don't don't realize is that without the influence of like a good bass player a lot of bands would just not be at all the same like to make it more relatable like if you listen to nirvana mm -hmm. uh like chris novoselic like you can listen to nirvana you can listen to like smells like team spirit team spirit but like 
without the Chris Novoselic bass line in there, the the guitar line is just like this kind of jangly, crinkly. I, I don't think it's nearly as iconic without like the huge when he slides in and is like hammering on the low notes with the pick. Yep. It's just it's just crazy how much you can affect a song. Yeah, just and little things. <laughs> and and it's also funny that you can play something fairly simple and then if you get a chance to to take off and do anything with it you can rip off a really cool solo and the fun thing about it is no one ever expects the bass solo so if you get a chance to do that you know if you work that that out with your with your band and you can play a solo it doesn't have to be anything spectacular but people will just eat it up too yeah. i mean i've I, i've had a couple uh, again with 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 that Strange Brew uh, rendition we did with my last band, everyone in the band got to do a solo. So mm -hmm. we had three guitar players, drummer and myself, and, you know, by the by the time that you get to me, everyone else is kind of going down low, down low, and then here I just come out ripping with this ridiculously technical bass solo that I was just making up off out of my ass, honestly. You know, just kind of kind of out of out of a blues scale. And I mean, sure, it wasn't the best solo, but just the fact is, is you have people enthralled by the fact that you're showing technical skill that people just don't expect from a bass player. But also just the fact that you're up there, you you look like you belong. It's a lot of that stage presence is when you're playing bass, you got to look like you want to be there. It's it's definitely something I've I've I, I wish I could tell the to more inexperienced bass players, like if if you want to you have to really want to be there because again, it's not the easiest instrument to understand because you're, you're not trying to be the lead. It's something I've had to fight with myself is how much do I want to try to show off and how much do I actually need to play, you know, the, the undertones here, do the right yeah. things, be technical. And there, there's so many different ways you could go about this. But if you, if you think about one of my uh, biggest biggest influences i am obsessed with james jamerson out of motown how could just, you not be yeah i mean just every bit out of there um it, it, it's, it's so amazing just the fact that just the, the technical prowess the ability to be able to play in the pocket as we call it as bass players um yeah. to just be able to play the right thing at the right time and to the point where no one notices you're there but again, they would notice if you're not there. So it just it fits, not there. It fits yep. in so seamlessly that you're there and you're playing this bass line. And then when you cut it out, it just, it's, it's not much. And that's the thing is that bass playing doesn't have to be about trying to match the guitar player. It's great if you can, but sometimes being a bass player just means playing the simple stuff, but doing it right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think... Um... One of the things that I notice about a lot of bass players, like if you if you ever go watch a show live, I think it's it's very often, uh, and again this is gonna sound like more more of a self horn tooting or whatever, but it's <laughs> I think it's I think it's very often that like if you go the bassist is the best musician in the band, but in like a in like the sleeper way, like the the lead guitarist oh they know all their scales they know their modes their pentatonics and everything and they're Weedily wheedling around and then like the bass player is being subdued and then when you give them that shot they're playing incredibly musical things like the things that kind of meld together and and it's really easy to be impressed by like th that kind of skill and that kind of talent and they don't get to show it very often 
right? Like if mm-hmm. you, you when you when you hear a bass solo, um, a lot of people are like, oh well, that's the funny thing about a bass solo it gives everyone time to go get more beer, or whatever. But like if you hear a truly good one, like uh, a truly good bass player ripping out ripping out a solo, everybody is kind of like locked in and kind of enthralled. At least if you're a musician, I, th- I think. <laughs> bass players are the people who impress other musicians the most yeah i i I remember again playing a song it was our it was our finishing or our finisher for the set and we had a guitar solo in there but you know after the guitar solo as we're getting into the final chorus as we're trying to finish the song um i i still maintain to this day that they weren't uh the audience was not cheering for the guitar player. They were cheering for me because I was just leaving everything out on the table, just going up on the the second set of 12 frets and just noodling a lot, but still finishing all the notes I needed to do. I was just adding a whole bunch of fills and whatnot. And again, that's just one of those bits of personal expression is I'm still playing what I need to do. I'm just adding some other funky stuff in there and people just love it. So it's, it's fun to be able to just like in EDH, just like in CDH, to be able to demonstrate a little bit of personality while also having a core that you stick to. Absolutely, that's a that that's a really good tie-in. It, yeah. it really is. And uh, again, and speaking of technical bass playing, uh, again, I don't think we can have a podcast about bass playing with technicality without mentioning um, without mentioning very long time amazing bass player, amazing bass player Dusty Hill from ZZ Top, who just passed away a week or two ago. And again, everyone thinks that with ZZ Top and the amazing things that they have been able to do over the last 50 years, that Billy Gibbons is the band. I mean, he kind of is, but, you know, with without those bass vibes, man, it's, there's nothing there. Yeah, and, you know, uh, one of the things that I said about Dusty right when I heard was he just played the heck out of one, four and five. Like yeah. the, the man was, he just had immaculate, like uh musical sense. He had such musicality, had such groove. And, uh, you know, it's that, that's a, that's like a, if you're a bass player and you listen to like rock or blues growing up, that's like a big hit, right? Mm-hmm. Dusty is, oh man. But you know, that he's not, he's, you know, he's not Jocko or, but he is, he he was special and uh yeah. yeah that's i mean that's that's a big loss for like i think the music community and and if you look at someone like him who's been doing it for like 30 30 years or something like that or longer actually mm-hmm. uh it's it's crazy that uh it's crazy to think that he wasn't an insanely talented musician or like you don't make it that long if you're not incredibly talented and for mm-hmm. him to for him to do stuff like one, four, five, uh, boogie and blues and twelve bar blues and that kind of stuff, while obviously being an incredible musician, just shows like great restraint and a desire to serve the band, right? Yeah, because, Big because loss. Again, yeah, yeah. Again, Billy Gibbons takes over the personality of the band, but even he is subdued in a lot of the stuff that he does. I mean, if you watch him play. You know, he's trying to make everything as simple as possible for himself. I mean, ZZ Top, for as good as they sound, were actually always a very subdued band, just yep. in, in, in tenor and in form. And they they did the simplest stuff. But yeah, just knowing your role in that band and still just killing it, it it's crazy. 
And yeah. for and, and again, Scoots, for those who don't understand one four five, obviously we do, but I think we might oh. as well talk about a little bit yeah. of music theory here. Sure. Let's, let, let, let's explain to the to everyone. I mean, I, I know what you're talking about, but yeah. let, let's do a quick explanation of blues, especially since you just got in a blues band yourself. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm playing in a kind of blues reggae type of type of band right now and i think one four five is like the foundation of western musicality if you want to call it that sure sure especially um, like blues and rock which so you know, you, it's easy yeah <laughs> so if you look at like a major or minor scale you know i know you know this but mm -hmm. uh there are essentially seven scale degrees like when if you were a kid and you sang do re mi fa sol la ti do like that kind of thing uh, there are seven scale degrees and then an octave, which is the eighth scale degree, which is the same as the first one. So if you talk about one, four, or five, like those are the, those are if you if you stack thirds essentially. So like uh, one and then three, and then five in in a in a scale, uh, the one, four, and five chords are the chords that are major, mm -hmm. which are like the happy kind of like if you hear that kind of thing uh the 12 bar blues kind of classic yeah. pattern if i had a guitar i could pluck it out but uh yeah <laughs> so one four and five are kind of like kind of like the major chords and kind of like the foundation of uh uh like johnny be good johnny be good is a good example oh yeah of, chuck uh, berry of, yep a yeah true classic i mean honestly really one of the fa fathers of rock and roll if not the biggest influence of rock and roll period yeah i mean you know chuck berry uh are uh, gosh can you call him uh kind of kind of yeah like foundational rock and roll like you precursor to rock and roll and then even like yeah original rock and roller chuck yeah. berry but if you, if you look at if you look at song structure if you listen to like johnny b good especially the chorus they, they do uh one four one five is is the musical structure. Kind of like the do 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 and in a 12-bar blues format, you're going to be going between those at prescribed times. So again, using Johnny B. Good, you are in, there's 12 bars of music. You're typically going to be going 1, 1, 1, 1, 1, 1 through 4 bars, then the 4, back to 1, then to 5, back to 4, back to 1. Back to so one. It's, it's very difficult to describe this, obviously, just in a podcast. Yeah. But I mean, effectively, yeah, your Scoots is definitely right here. Is it one four five is the foundation of blues music, especially the twelve bars f format, which is extremely popular, still is, honestly, and yeah. really set the roots of rock and roll in motion. Because again, Chuck Berry used a lot of this stuff. Elvis used a lot of this stuff. Bill Haley used a lot of this stuff. Um, yep. Little Richard throwing out all the fifties names I can think of. Uh, Buddy Holly utilized this. Um, Richie Valens did, I mean, just all these amazing artists utilizing the same basic concept of the one, four, five, that was really 
pioneered back in the, the old Delta Blues days, and Delta it was Blues, really popularized yeah. by, um, again, Muddy Waters, Helen Wolf, Lightning Hopkins, just all the classic uh, blues men. Yeah. B.B. King, another... B.B. King, yep. Lots of lots of B.B. King, lots of 145 for B.B. King. Sometimes I forget B.B. King, jeez. Sometimes some six because B.B. was a visionary. Yeah. Uh, but, but, yeah. yeah. It, <laughs> it's fun just to be able to talk about music. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely nice to talk about music. It's one of those things that, like... Uh, you know, I did, I did like a lot of theory. I did like some collegiate theory and some composition and stuff. So it's nice to be able to chat with someone who kind of, uh, can expound on the, on the, on the gibberish that's coming out of my mouth. Yeah, well, it's nice I, that you're able to make that relatable. I actually never studied theory, but just, you know, through practice and understanding and just being a student of music myself, just listening and watching and trying to pay attention and just then trying to move that to the bass and to the guitar, understanding here's how the blues scale works, for instance. Here's how I play it on guitar. Here's how I play it on bass. And just trying to put all that stuff together. And it's it's interesting when you really dig into that is that when eventually after playing bass for a couple of years, I decided to pick up a guitar again because all of a sudden the chord stuff started to make more sense, right? That, mm. you know, all of a sudden trying to do a D chord or an E chord, G chord, any of those kinds of things. Well, all of a sudden now I understand the whole point of how you play guitar. You're trying to press the fret down. Here's kind of some of the patterns you're going to be going through. Well, all of a sudden those chords, oh, the chords are not necessarily what you're trying to do. They're just ways to kind of kind of markers, I suppose, waypoint signs in, 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 in a lot of popular music is that you don't have to always play chords. It helps, but you don't have to. And that's really what helped me learn to play guitar is you can kind of unshackle yourself just from playing chords if you want to do some different kinds of music. Obviously, some guitar music is a lot of chords, and that's fine. But you don't have to play only chords. And playing the bass allowed me to then go back to guitar with a completely different mindset. And it's just really interesting how being a bass player has helped me learn other instruments. I mean, even just being a drummer. Well, you get a new appreciation for what the drummer has to go through by playing bass. You understand, well, I have to hit this particular drum head, the cymbal, hi-hat, whatever, at this yeah. exact time. You understand time management as a bass player, and then you're able to go over to, to drums, say, okay, I need to now take that time management play this pattern. I mean, I can obviously riff on it a little bit, but I've got to play this pattern. And then when I went over to guitar, it's okay. I understand what the bass player is doing. How do I try to work around that as a guitar player? And that's, yeah. you know, it, it's still a pro work in progress for me. I've never really played guitar in a band before. So that's, that's uh, something new. Eventually maybe I'll have a chance to do, but just being a bass player has made me a better musician because I've had to understand the low end and understand keeping in time, keeping in rhythm, and just, you know, just doing what you have to do, being that dusty hill to make sure that the band sounds good, even if you're kind of internally screaming inside that you're bored. You know, it's it's actually, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I've kind of, I've kind of always said that, like, uh, as a bass player you're kind of like the intersection of of the treble and and the rhythm section right like and one of the things that i'll one of the things that you notice is like uh, it's it's really easy to be pulled in two separate directions because you're trying to stay in what 
you're trying to stay in the uh what the nebulous pocket right you're trying mm-hmm. to stay in the pocket you're trying to stay locked in uh you want your your big hits to be in line with the kick drum and you kind of want to rhythmically uh emulate the textures that the drum is playing while at the same time chordally you're following the guitar and then uh, in a lot of cases trying to uh double or reinforce some of those lines at the same time so you you kind of uh act as the messenger between the guitar and the drums as a bass player and i think uh the like the sign of really good trios right if you talk about like uh the police is an example i love i love to use right like sting and stuart copeland incredible rhythm section and without that foundation the the band is you know it's it's less tight it's not as good sting is an incredible bass player uh and he kind of is at the forefront of all of it because he's also one of the things oh my gosh i could talk about sting for a half hour but but with with sting you'll hear him sing melodic parts while at the same time playing harmonic content on his bass and tracking all the root notes of the chord progressions at the same time. Sting has a million things going on in his brain. He's like a supercomputer that sings and plays bass. Uh, sure, I, I, I love Sting. Yeah, I, I've but. also felt the same way about Getty Lee of Rush, too. Yep. Just an Getty absolute genius. Incredible, incredible, virtuosic player. Uh, in like a more modern tone, uh, like Thundercat is another incredible bassist who plays incredible harmonic stuff as well as keeping rhythm as well as singing at the same time and then another uh musician who is not a bassist i will give compliments to a drummer this evening uh anderson pock i don't know if you're familiar yeah yeah with him but he is a drummer that sings at the same time and is the band leader at the same time another person with just like crazy crazy high musical aptitude uh i guess what i'm trying to say is that the rhythm section rules and guitarists drool as i guess <laughs> if i had to condense it now it's a lot of fun stuff so again before we finish today just wanted you to shout out the new guitar you just got a couple weeks ago oh my goodness i'm i'd love to talk about that i recently got my first american-made fender it's fender precision it's the american professional 2 it's everything that i wanted it's got so many little touches that make me happy uh lightweight tuners big thick neck that i can get my thumb over the top of it's black and white which Mm -hmm. is the perfect color scheme for an instrument in my opinion Mm. um it's got uh (laughs) i may have to disagree with you there but that's oh, well. fair. I can <laughs> I can understand. It has a uh, it has a slightly wider radius than the normal Fender. I think it's a twelve inch radius fretboard, so it's a little bit flatter than like a normal Fender. Mm-hmm. It's got like carbon fiber rods in the neck, so that I don't have to get it set up as much when it's like I live in the in the Northeast, so it's like cold then hot then cold then hot like mm-hmm. pretty often and. It's it's pretty hellish for instrument necks. Um but yeah, it uh, definitely is. But uh yeah, it's it's um gosh, it's 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 like my dream instrument. Uh, I'm so happy I have it. Big fan. Yeah. What and... I've learned since I was like a young kid. 
Yeah, and it's a really nice guitar because again, I I learned on a Squire J bass. So okay. again, that was my first instrument. That was the first one I bought back when my parents said, you know, you're probably not going to play bass very often. This is just a phase, right? Well, <laughs> I'm st- well, mom and dad, I'm still playing. Not as much, obviously, due to COVID, but I'm still playing when I feel like it. So. Yeah, it's yeah. it's one of those things. And again, I, I can't talk about awesome basses without talking about my personal bass. Um, besides my J bass, which I actually have across the room over here. It doesn't get used a whole ton. But the, the pride and joy of my collection is my Epiphone Thunderbird Mark IV. Oh, yeah. Epiphone, Epiphone Thunderbird Pro Mark IV, I think is what it's called. And in sunburst finish, so it's got the nice, like, orangey-yellow bit, and you've seen it. Yep. And the nice black uh, pick guard with the Thunderbird logo on there. Plays real nice, has active pickups, so again, for anyone who's unfamiliar with this, effectively there's a battery in there, which allows it to get effectively more gain, I suppose, more oomph to the tone. So, I mean, yep. that that's kind of, eh, depending on what you're trying to play, obviously. But it's just, it's, and it's a heavy sucker. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I had a guitar player once who was big and burly try putting my guitar on. It's just, whoa, this is this heavy? Just, yeah, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm a 130 pound weakling over here. It's like, I know. But I, <laughs> but I play this, I play this bass because it just, it looks so friggin' cool. And it, it plays so nicely that, and it just looks so beautiful. Everyone, everyone who's seen that just loves the hell out of this bass. I, I cannot imagine not not having that bass. It looks so nice. And plays Love a well. Thunderbird. So does Rex Brown. Rex Brown plays a Thunderbird. Famous Thunderbird player. Rex Brown. Pantera. Yep. And and if you go to the flip side of this one, you got a lot of similar guitar pl- or a lot of similar guitars out of the Gibson line for the Firebird. Firebirds. Yep. In fact, did you see that Gibson just re-released the USA non-reverse Thunderbird bass? interesting yeah they just they just re-released it in uh i think pelham blue nice okay, color yeah. oh pelham blue is so nice I, I i saw one of those at guitar center a while back for a firebird yeah. and it was so clean yeah no that they, uh, they just yeah gibson usa they heard they heard everybody they re-released uh they're very pretty i like them that's it. That's it. If you like pretty bases, go yeah. check one out. Yep, yep, yep. And again, I, I just love my sunburst finish. So that's that's what yep. makes my, my T bird look so good. So Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just love having that, that color. Again, it's all up to personal preference. It's all how we how we enjoy our instruments, how they look and how they sound. I love fender bases like yours. Is that though those are so nice to play because they're just so smooth. And since I did learn on the Squire version, which is the super cheap version of Fender, just like Epiphone is the cheap version of Gibson, I, I'm not going to go into who bought out who <laughs> and all that. I mean, cause, sure, cause that goes sure. down a whole another can of worms in the you know history of the. Yeah, uh, I mean, especially with Epiphone guitars, and but, Gibson, right? Yeah, like, yeah. But yeah. Uh, long story short, is that having learned on something that has a very similar feel to a Fender bass. I can appreciate then picking one up, let's say Guitar Center or one of my other local music stores and just being able to just play that because you have that familiarity and it's just yeah. really nice to be able to know, okay, I can pick this up. I mean, at one of my last gigs, I didn't even bring my own instrument. I just picked up a, uh, what was it, like a, a Squire Jaguar, I think. So something yeah. similar. 
and just slung that on. Unfortunately, put the uh, uh, the, the neck strap on a little too long, so it was kind of dangling low, like oh, I was hanging. on like a yeah. '90s MTV music video. But you know, hey. playing uh, playing Cream. But yeah, you know, it, stylish. It, Come on. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't mean to to. <laughs> to, to give it that much slack so here it's just hanging there and i'm on stage and we have to start playing it's like oh crap gotta shorten this thing just oh crap gotta start playing and you know it takes like five to ten seconds to just get used to it. but after yeah. 30 seconds you're just grooving no one needs to know you found those notes and just everything's just fine the floor's moving it's it's an awesome experience if people out there have never played music live it is such an enriching experience. I cannot recommend it enough. Yeah, you you definitely if if you play an instrument at all, you should definitely try and play out live. At like at least one time. And you're gonna be scared and you're gonna shake and you're gonna sweat a little bit, but that'll all go away uh at the end of like as soon as the drummer's done counting the four count, that'll go away. You'll be You'll be happy. You'll be in the zone. It just happens. It's a great experience, and you'll probably want to do it again. Yeah, I Definitely I, I love I love performing. I I'm not I'm not a very sociable person. Sometimes you know, depending on on the mood, depending on what's going on. But get me on a stage, and it's completely different. And is that you? You don't have to be the most outgoing person to be a great musician. You just have yeah. to really you. As long as you look like you want to be there, you've sold. You've sold it. I'm a little terrified because I've got my first gig in a while coming up in a couple of weeks here. Oh man! Uh, so, in front fingers of crossed. What should, yeah, in front of what should be a pretty good sized evening crowd. So I'm I'm nice. excited. But. Nice, nice. Well, good luck on that one. It sounds awesome. Wish I could do that. Hopefully, when things return to a bit more normal and you know I start getting out more, hopefully I can start getting yeah. the band back together on my own. Start playing bass again. Yeah. I hope you can. All right. Well, thank you so much, Scoots, for being on the episode. It's been great talking to you about EDH, CDH, and bass and blues theory, too. Yeah, <laughs> it's been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, again, where can people find the Mind Sculptors online? Uh, Mind Sculptors are on YouTube at uh, the Mind Sculptors. I think it's. I think we have a custom URL now. Yeah, and then uh, you can go on Twitter at Sculpty Boys with an I, B O I S. Sounds good. And you can find the entire back catalog of the MTG and Quarantine podcast on the usual podcast outlets. That's Spotify. Spotify. <laughs> wow. I've, I Apparently, I can't do, a, I can't do this uh, promo after an hour because I, I forget what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, Spotify, Google, Apple, Player FM, MTG Cast, and the usual gang. If it's a podcast outlet, I'm probably there. You can also find my Patreon over at patreon.com slash quarantine. If you're interested in monetarily supporting the show, I really enjoy being able to make this content. And if you want to help me make more amazing content, definitely look me up on there and sign up for one of my Patreon tiers. Got some interesting stuff on there, so definitely take a look over at patreon.com slash quarantine. Yeah, again, you can also find me on Twitter at, at mtgandquarantine if you found the really happy-looking Ulamog wearing headphones probably listening to some ZZ Top in memoriam, then you found the right place. All right, Heck so yeah. again, you've been listening to the MTG in Quarantine podcast. My name's MJ. Have a great rest of your day, everybody, and rock on. Bye.